0: I think my fever is back up. I can smell smoke in the room. Lady Emaine is praying, kneeling beside the bed with her book of hours. Rosmund told me they have sent for the steward's wife again. Lady Emaine despises her. I must be truly ill for Emaine to have sent for her. I wonder if they will send for the priest. If they do, I must ask him if he knows where Gawain found me. It's so hot in here. This part is not like a fairy tale at all. They only send for the priest when someone is dying, but probability says there was a 72% chance of dying of pneumonia in the 1300s. I hope he comes soon, to tell me where the drop is, and hold my hand.
1: Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, this is the world's smallest book club, although it is a little bigger this week, which we'll get to in a second. Um, our gimmick is that we try and read books over 500 pages. Um, oftentimes, texts that you know you might want a buddy to get through, like uh, Charles Taylor's A Secular Age. Really liked having a friend for that one. This one you don't need a friend to get through. It rips you through it. You might need a friend to talk to afterwards since it will destroy you emotionally, but it was Connie Willis's Doomsday Book. We have brought someone in special. I would call her a Connie Willis expert, at least the Connie Willis expert in my life. Uh, she's a screenwriter from L.A., uh, one of our best friends in the world, and a you know close friend of the podcast. Obviously, uh, please welcome Christy Kleppinger. I hope you're clapping at home, Christy. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, thanks. This is a little bit like a longtime listener, first time caller vibe. <laughs>
1: Well, it, what's okay? What's okay? So, just some background. So, we the three of us went to high school together. We were all close friends. You know, I, I talked to Christine, Bill, kind of separately all the time. But this is the first time we've we've talked. We decided this is the first time we've talked as a group in like eleven years. Right? That's what we decided.
0: I think yeah. I think there's been a couple of like Twitter threads with all three of us, but I think the first time we've all been on a phone call or in person for eleven years. I think that's right.
1: Yeah. So so this is exciting for us for lots of reasons, but. Truly, uh, Christy is the person who got me into Connie Willis. And I was going to ask you, Chris, uh, do you remember like what year you told me to read Doomsday Book? Was it eighth grade? Do you remember that at all?
2: It probably was. I read Doomsday Book, the, the sort of infamous story in our family is that we went on a family vacation to Hawaii when I was twelve and i read the only book i brought with me for the trip on the plane on the way there
1: oh yeah classic Christie move
2: (laughs) right um and so halfway through the trip i was driving my family crazy and my older sister gave me her copy of the doomsday book and was like here have another book so if i read it then probably yeah seventh or eighth grade i was an evangelist very early
1: (laughs) yeah well so you okay so we're gonna do it sorry for the uh reunion hour for a second but so my wife Emily and Christy were were best friends. It's basically how I met my wife was through Christy. And so you guys did a you did a plague project in eighth grade, right? Was that because of the book?
2: Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: like a very normal twelve year old girl,
2: I went through a, a deep obsession with the Black Death. Because I remember of
1: this, book. this. You were you really were you you told me facts about the Black Plague all the time, <laughs> <laughs> all the time. Still do, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's still a thing that happens.
2: Um, and so we had to pick a, I think, a history project or something about Europe. And I was like, I know what we're doing. And we, the whole nine yards. We dressed up in costume. We sang creepy nursery rhymes. The whole
1: nine yards. It was the greatest uh, eighth-grade history project I've ever seen. You guys were <laughs> decked out. the The poster board behind you was like professional. I mean, I, I literally I remember you guys standing back to back and chanting weird stuff. Um, I think
2: we had a rat. I think we had, like, a big plastic rat that yeah, we that used as right. part of it. Yeah, that sounds right.
1: Yeah. Very normal so,
2: teenage girl behavior.
1: But you were also, but you, so obviously, that. so the Doomsday book was the first love, first obsession, but you know Connie Willis, like, you've read, you've read basically everything of hers, or I think most things of hers, correct?
2: I I, I think I've read everything, actually.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you have. I just didn't want to set you up for you know, <laughs> for accidental failure. Um, yes. Yeah,
2: so post reading the Doomsday Book, my grandmother was a huge Connie Willis fan, had many like signed copies of things, had gone to book signings and all kinds of stuff. And so when she found out that
1: I'd love the Doomsday Book, she's just started to supply me with everything else. That's beautiful. Um, and okay and I guess Bill so I I don't so I directly I, I read this book because of Christy and I you 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 read it for the first time this year which we'll get to but I was just curious how much of like the the Christie Joel hype influenced you going to Connie Willis was it us or was it other people
0: Be honest. no it was it was uh it was Christy specifically uh I I I remember at some point in high school having this conversation with Christy where she said, you should read Connie Willis. You should specifically read To Say Nothing of the Dog, and then you should also read Doomsday Book because they're incredible, but you should read To Say Nothing of the Dog first. And I said, cool, and for whatever reason didn't do it until about 2018 when I was looking at books, and I was like, hey, To Say Nothing of the Dog by Connie Willis. You know, I have a 13-year-old or whatever recommendation on this. I'll read it. And it was incredible. It was a dynamite novel. Uh I think I messaged christy at the time saying, "Hey, you know, mm. 13 years later I read this book. Thanks for recommending it." <laughs> um and then I'm actually uh doing a Connie Willis 100% run through right now. Uh any percent? Mm. Uh, no, I'm trying to make some sort of speedrunning Twitch joke here and it didn't work. Uh But anyway, I'm doing a <laughs> Connie Willis read through right now. Um because which is ridiculous because I had prior to it read exactly one Connie Willis book, but I went and purchased uh, all of it, actually. Uh, all, all of all of the Connie Willis. And I'm oh, reading through oh, it from the beginning. Uh, so I've read, at this point, um, two of the three novels she wrote with Cynthia Felice. So Water Witch mm. and Light Raid. I've read Firewatch, her first collection of short stories, which won several awards. And I've read Lincoln's Dreams, uh, which is her mm. first solo novel. And I've read Doomsday Book just now. And I had, I'm out of order, but I had also read To Say Nothing of the Dog. So I've got quite a few of her other work. Ahead of me still, but uh, that's where I am in the Connie Willis project. And yeah, it's entirely because of Christy Klepp. I wouldn't say entirely. I mean, there are other people lately I've been seeing who've talked yeah. about it. but certainly, uh, No,
1: Christy, Christy blots
0: them out, yeah. Well, it's really the initial <laughs> impetus, right? So rather than like, oh, this is an interesting science fiction author I've never heard of, it's like, oh, right, I really should get around to that.
1: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, and um, I do think uh, we, we, we'll, we'll leave this. We have so much to talk about, and it's going to be so much fun talking with the both of you that I'm going to have to try and really... Keep us on track, (laughs) because I just want to talk about everything, you know? But I do think it's funny. Connie Willis is funny to me because um, her best work I love. I think it's some of the best stuff I've read. But I'll be honest, I I think she's one of those authors that actually, like, this is going to sound like a a weird nag, but it's not. She kind of is one of those authors who, to me, has proven, like, you only have to write a good book to be a good writer. It doesn't matter if you've written a bad book, if that makes sense, because I I don't Mm. like some of her other books, actually. I think some of her best... Features go sour sometimes. But, like, weirdly, I've found that very encouraging. Because I think a lot, a lot of times when you're writing a book, you don't know if all of your gimmicks are going to work. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, one of my favorite writers, who was also a professor, he's, like, known for doing short stories, um, and most of it is, it's all good, but, like, when his gimmick goes sour, it's really noticeable because he's so distinctive. And I think Connie Willis is similar. She has such distinctive things that she's doing with, um, you know, kind of her, her rat-a-tat dialog and her foreshadowing stuff that I think, you know, when it goes off, it goes off, but I, I just love it that, like, her best books obliterate anything that's mediocre does it make sense i mean i'm not sure no one has to agree with me but i i kind of it's like weirdly inspiring that like she's written a couple mediocre books and also some of like the best sci-fi slash books period that i've read um i find it weirdly yeah weirdly inspiring
0: i i should note just before we get too further into it that connie willis is actually the most highly decorated science fiction author of all time in terms of uh, just number of Hugos and Nebulas won. Uh, she's won more Hugos and Nebulas than anyone else. And she's one of the only people, maybe the only person, who's won a Hugo for every length of fiction. Novel, novella, novelette, novelette, and short story. So, you know, she's I'm a big deal. I'm
2: very glad that you said that, Bill, so that I didn't have to be the, like, <laughs> voice that pipes up with that.
1: <laughs> by the way. Yeah. <laughs> no, con- yeah, so Connie Willis also, uh, by the way, from co- from Colorado, which, you know, the three of us, Essentially, are as well. Um, so she she is beloved by us for many reasons, and she is She's If you haven't read Connie Willis, I, I don't know why you listen to the podcast, but welcome. But she is <laughs> she is one of our favorite authors, but also like as much as you can be objective with critical consensus, she is one of the great reads of the last thirty years. Um, and this book, which we'll get to, honestly, this book is such a great first read that I didn't know how it would feel to read it. You know, for the third time and it was it was mind blowing it was still mind blowing it was still great um, but let's pause on that cuz actually so I, I don't i mean sometimes i i feel like i zoom out too much but this is a book this is like the plague book, right? So there's a lot of, it's a lot of plague books, such as Camus the Plague. So maybe that's more the plague book, but, um, <laughs> I but don't this... know
2: for, for this year, this is the plague book.
1: No, this is, so this book, which we'll get to, and, and it would help with maybe I, I described it, but I'm going to hold off on kind of summarizing it and getting into it because my first, my first thought before I even read this book was, Hmm, how is it going to feel to like purposely engage With basically all of this COVID type stuff in fiction, and I was curious about you guys for the last year. I was I kind of had a couple questions about like I feel like it's been impossible to read or watch old things that have any kind of sickness or lockdown element, and not sort of always be like that Leo DiCaprio GIF, you know, from Once Upon (laughs) a Time in Hollywood. Be like, oh my gosh, that's us. You know, like every time I like came across like a mention of a mask, it was like, oh my gosh, that's a mask. I wear masks, you know, like a little stupidly, but. I was curious, like the last year of kind of basically pandemic literature, pandemic movies, I was curious, one, if you sought them out, and then two, kind of what your what your feelings and reactions were when you came across it purposefully or otherwise. Um,
2: so for me, actually, I've spent the year avoiding all of that as much as humanly possible, to the point that we we've been spending our quarantine here in Los Angeles watching as many kind of low-budget indie horror films as we can get our hands on. And there's been a few that we've started not knowing much about and in the first few minutes kind of reveal themselves to be about a virus or about a lockdown or something like that. And we've turned them off and watched something else because it just feels like too much. So this is really one of the first bits of plague content that I've purposefully engaged in. I did unfortunately recommend this book to a friend last summer not really thinking about that. I think at the time I was like, yeah, it's kind of about a plague, so I don't know if that's going to be uncomfortable. And during this reread for the podcast, I texted her and I was like, I am so sorry, that was <laughs> totally an My bad. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. So for me, this is really the first bit that I've I've done because everything has felt too close to home
1: all year. Yeah. No. I, I yeah. I, I've had some of that myself. I'm, but yeah, I'm curious about you, Bill. Did you seek it out or did you avoid it? And when you found it, what happened?
0: I didn't really go looking for art about the pandemic or anything like that. I, I think I had read a few things where there was a virus and people were wearing masks or whatever, but I wasn't really looking for it. The only other thing I can think of, though, and one that definitely did mirror the sort of parts of my experience, that uh, which was basically being trapped in my house, right? uh was uh the thing everyone's talking about right now which just came out a few weeks ago is bo burnham's uh inside the it's technically a comedy special but that doesn't really feel like the right word for it yeah um
1: about about depression
0: (laughs) yeah it's basically about uh i don't think he even ever hardly says the word pandemic in it but it's about you know he decides to make it all by himself uh in his attic space uh while he's trapped inside for the pandemic and he's slowly losing his mind and uh I, I really enjoy the special, I think it's really good, uh, but that would be the big thing, I think, other than Doomsday Book, that really felt on point, and I just watched that, I think, last week. I think it's really good. I will, I will be in the strong pro inside camp, although I was not a Bo Burnham guy beforehand.
1: I So, first of all, same on the Bo Burnham stuff. I actually didn't get the negative reaction to it. I get if it it's not your thing, but trying to talk about how it's not an impressive thing, to me, feels like you don't understand, you know... I don't know, comedy or, or kind of cinematic flourishes or whatever, but, but so I, I do feel like most people I've talked to have tried to avoid, right? They tried to avoid pandemic stuff because it's already in our life so much. Why would, why, why, why have more of it? But for me, I feel like I kept like, like tripping across it on accident. And actually the one that got me the most, which I, I wrote a big essay on that hopefully will come out in the next month or two. But, um, I read this like, uh, collection of love letters from World War II, that this young woman wrote, you know, she was living in London Blitz, writing it to her fiancé abroad, and it, w- it wasn't published until 2020, and it, and it was kind of bizarre, because it didn't have any virus stuff, but it had lockdown stuff, you know, like kind of the idea of scarcity, or the idea of, like, life being disrupted, her own plans being disrupted, um, and it was funny, because I, w- I was really grateful that I found that on accident, because I wouldn't have sought it out on purpose, but I, I guess I, I asked the question partly because, I did find that book and this one pretty cathartic in a way that I wasn't expecting. You know what I mean? Like I thought it would kind of, um, either be like annoying to be kind of immersed in like a fictional version of what I'm already going through, or it would be kind of just like too much. But I, Maybe it's just Connie Willis. Maybe she's just brilliant enough that I, you know, it just landed. Anyway, I do I do find it funny that, like, the pandemic happened and half the internet was like, here's a reading list of other pandemics that you can enjoy. I was like, mm-hmm. I, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm fine. I've I read Blindness. Blindness was depressing before Blindness was a real thing, you know, the book. Um, anyway. So, okay, any any other thoughts on that, or do you guys want to move on to the actual book? I think we should probably do that. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, so, I, so uh, against against the, the usual form of things, which, you know, it's hard to do. Uh, I'm going to try and summarize this text instead of what making Bill do. it. Partly because I, I want Bill to talk a lot afterwards as kind of the only person to have read it for the first time. But please interrupt me if you, uh, if you guys need to, okay? All right. The first thing about this book is that time travel is real. Welcome to the year 2054 where we can go back in time but hysterically, I think, only historians do it. Because there are all sorts of scientific laws that protect the timeline and basically nullify paradoxes. So a lot of your usual time travel conundrums, she sort of writes away from the beginning. You can go back in time, but pretty much only academics are doing it, because it's only worthwhile from like an anthropological standpoint. So the book is basically split into two different sections. One is 2054. Um, which is, you know, kind of the future. Uh, obviously, it's the future. I don't know why I said that. The other is 1320 slash actually 1348, which we'll get to. The main thrust of the novel is that Kivren, who is a student at Oxford in England, goes back in time to the Middle Ages to try and learn about this period of history, which no one has really ever gone to before. Each century is ranked as f- according to like how dangerous it is, and they don't send historians to places that are super super dangerous. And of course, the 14th century was all about the Black Plague and randomly being murdered by cutthroats. Is how they talk about it in the book, at least. So it's a, it's a big deal. Again, I think it's kind of funny because she sort of just does it. Like, <laughs> like I don't know, what she's going. To, I don't know. It's like this huge deal. But the book the book is so smart about like it's just like a thesis project she's undertaking. And so then from, from the time that she goes back to the thir- uh, 14th century, the book has two narratives. One is Kivrin in the 14th century, and one is 2054. There are basically two casts of characters, but who leads the 2054 cast is Mr. Dunworthy, who basically is Kivrin's tutor. There are lots of characters in this book, and I I can't name them all because I think it'll drive everyone crazy. But those are the two leads, Kivrin and Dunworthy. And then there's some other characters who I'll I'll talk about in a second. But really what happens is that for both narratives, the plot is about being sick and trying to solve the problem of Kivrin being stuck in the past. She goes back to the 14th century. She immediately has this like flu-like breakdown which she shouldn't have because she has all this futuristic med inoculation stuff going on and then so because of her sickness she's disoriented she didn't know where she came through and she has to go back to the exact place to get home and so a lot of the book is about her trying to figure out how do I get to this place where I came through how do I get there to go back on the correct day that I have to be there and in the 2054 parts Dunworthy, likewise, is trying to figure out how to get Kivrin home because as soon as she goes through, um, the tech who helped her go through, Bodri, comes down with a flu-like illness much like Kivrin's. And 2054 then becomes basically an outbreak storyline where flu cases are increasing and Dunworthy, working with Dr. Ahrens, another major character, has to figure out not only Where is this outbreak of flu in 2054 coming from? But also, it's causing all sorts of problems with getting Kivrin back from the 14th century. I could go into a lot more detail. I'm going to try not to, because I think we can fill it in as we go along. But basically, Kivrin becomes part of a household in the 14th century. The household of a lady, Eloise. She's waiting for her husband in a kind of a mysterious fashion. And Kivrin becomes the nurse for these two girls, Rosamund and Agnes. And the entire time she's there, she thinks she's in 1320, and spoiler, I guess, the big twist in the novel is that she's actually in 1348, which is, of course, when the plague sweeps through not only England, but Oxford specifically. And in 2054, the flu is such a huge mutation that they don't know how to account for it, and it becomes um, a fatal you know, disease, as opposed to just um, sort of, you know, get a shot feel sick for a few days go home so there's a lot more that goes on there's you know dr arens who's a major character her her nephew comes the great nephew comes to town and helps dunworthy try and solve the problem of getting back to Kivren, which they eventually do but i think that's the main thrust of both novels that kiven stuck in the 14th century trying to get out learn she has you know she's in plague times Dunworthy in 2054 is trying to get her out while dealing with an outbreak of his own. And then for the last hundred pages, both outbreaks go nuts, right? People start dying in 2054, and of course the Black Plague decimates the entire town Kivrin's in. Um, in the end, Dunworthy and Colin, the great nephew of Dr. Arens, they get through, they rescue her, but there's a lot of shenanigans in between there. Um, that's kind of, so that's kind of the 30,000-mile... Uh, the Look down. What What do you want to add to that? Anyone? Anyone want to add to that real quick? Cause I'm sure I know I'm missing stuff.
2: I actually think that's a pretty good summary for for getting us started.
0: The only other thing I think I would say <clears throat> is that uh, this book is one of four current stories that Connie Willis has written with this kind of Oxford time travel premise, right? So the first, uh, first is Firewatch, which Kivrin actually appears in. It's set after Doomsday Book. They can't. There's a couple of disagreements between the two. I actually reread parts of Firewatch to remember it. Um, but uh, that's a novella or a novelette that she won a bunch of awards for. And then there's Doomsday Book. There's To Say Nothing of the Dog, which is a much more explicitly comedic sort of Jane Austen plus Douglas Adams uh, book. And then there's Blackout slash All Clear, which is one novel in two volumes that I haven't read yet. Uh, So she's used this sort of general Oxford historian time travel thing several times. And I think she's won Hugo's for all of them. (laughs) Yeah, they're all good.
1: They're all I mean, honestly, before I reread this book, before I reread this this time, I, I would have told you Blackout All Clear was her best work. But after rereading this, I've got to reread that because this one was so astounding, to be honest. But they're all great. I mean, I love them all.
0: Um, and so some of the same some of the same characters appear, but it's not like one hist it's not like one story, right? It's just like the same universe. Um, I mean, at least in the one three I've read, I guess I can't speak to blackout all clear. But by the way,
1: I, I won't we won't get into it. I did tell uh, in my wife Emily at one point, and you guys in a text. One way to think about this book <laughs> is as the worst. It's the worst study abroad <laughs> of all time. <laughs> do you know what I mean like you go to college you're like you know a a doe-eyed happy undergraduate gonna take over the world and then they send you to 14th century England and you watch everyone you come to love die in front of you
2: yeah (laughs) and you see in firewatch exactly what that looks like a year later you know what it looks like to have come back from the worst study abroad of all time
0: Yeah, I think Firewatch is interesting because it's the first one she wrote, or at least the first one she published, in this sort of time travel setting. And Kivrin is a minor but important character. And at the end of Firewatch, the hero of Firewatch uh, spends like two and a half years or something studying ancient languages to go and follow St. Paul around. And then because of a typographical error, which is not actually what happens, but what he thinks is a typographical error, he ends up going to St. Paul's Cathedral during the Blitz. Which is the sort of, like, silly joke that only Connie Willis can pull off. Um, and then it turns out later that that's not what actually happened. But that's at least what he thinks happens. And he's talking to Kivrin, and Kivrin's like, ah, it'll be fine. And also, there's a couple bits, he's he's railing against Mr. Dunworthy, who's in charge. And she's always like, no, you need you got it wrong about Dunworthy. And then later he comes back, and he, he talks to Kivrin. And he's like, wait a minute, you were... What happened to you? Where did you go? And she says, well, I ended up going to 1348, the plague year. And you can see her... Sort of be shell shocked at that. And so she's. Now, there's a few details that don't quite line up between the two books. You can tell she hadn't written the book after, before she published it, which is, I mean, obviously that's how that works. But uh, the it, it is fun to look back and see Kevin sort of shell shocked and, and still having had that experience, that little glimpse of her we get in the other book or the other short story.
1: Okay, so I, I think that's probably as, as good a summary as we can give for now, partly because um, this novel, its impact is a lot it's a lot about how the gut punches hit you and when they hit you and stuff. And so we, we have in this virtual room, we have three levels of Connie Willis expertise, right? I've read this book three times. I've read parts of it more than that, but I've read it through three times. Um, Christy, do you want to guess how many times you've read this book through? Uh, (laughs) Dozens? (laughs) A lot? Yeah. I think a lot is a great number. (laughs) Christy, by the way, Christy is like, there's like a lot of quotes out there, which I agree with about how, you know, you know, you love reading if you love rereading. And Christy is like the ultimate lover of reading because she's been truly an inspiration about like, go back to your favorites, just reread part of them. We read all of them, do it every year. Cause you, you seem to do that a lot, Chris. Um, I do.
2: I have a lot of books that I read every year and Connie Willis is a, a favorite for rereading. Yeah. So, she's so great. A lot will, on this
1: one. <laughs> no. And this, so I, I, want, I want to talk about that experience too, but actually of course we have Bill, um, Doomsday Virgin, I'm sorry. That's kind of a weird way to say it. (laughs) Um, But so Bill, I was curious, this book, I feel like, uh, I'm just curious how it kind of, how, how the emotional stuff hit you, or even just maybe the, the twists and the plot. I'm just curious, like what, what the first experience was with all of the, all of the, you know, little games she plays and how she resolves them.
0: So, uh, the book hit me really hard, actually, harder than I was expecting it to. Um, I, I'd, I'd already was on the County Willis train from what other reading I've done, uh, and I'd heard good things about this book. So, I mean, the big twist, which is when it turns out that when the technician sent her back in time, he was coming down with the flu in the future and goofed up and sent her to thirteen forty eight instead of thirteen twenty. I mean, I was I knew that right, uh, and I don't right. think the book the book's really not. I don't think you're confused that that's what happened for yeah, pretty early on. That's true because they they go they go out of their way early to talk about well she's definitely not going to 1348 so it's going to be okay (laughs) you know several times and then you know something's gone wrong and she's things aren't quite right when she's there and i mean i i think even if you'd never read the book before you'd have to be a little uh you're not paying attention to realize oh yeah so she's in 1348 or at least something like that uh and i had read a few reviews uh months ago which talked about how she ends up in the plague so I knew that was happening right what caught me off guard is how long it takes for the book to actually tell you that one of the things that Willis does in this book and I've seen her do it in some other stuff too is she spends a lot of time setting up a chessboard right before she then has everything all sort of add up at the last second Um, and I want to talk about that in a couple different ways Uh, but first you know 300 and the book's 580 pages my copy is and you're at almost page 400 I think before the plague actually happens Uh, The Black Death, I mean, right? So you get a lot of time with Kivrin trying to figure out what she's going to tell people because rather than coming through and, you know, having a perfectly devised explanation for why she's in the middle of town, she's amnesiac is what she ends up having to say because she was babbling and unconscious because she had the future flu for like two weeks. Not two weeks, but for a while, right? Uh, So she's trying to figure out how how she's going to maintain this cover and not get burned as a witch. You know, how she's going to get back to the drop is what they call it, which is the location and physical space where she has to be to go back to the future and you're meeting all of these people so you're meeting the, the lady of the house and her shrewish mother-in-law and then the like knight that she's probably having an affair with and all of the children and the, the priest in the town and all these other people right and you get a lot of time with all of them and then the black de- death comes and it kills all of them
1: every single one
0: so Joel said decimate he d- doesn't decimate the town it kills all of them It's a town of about 40 people, maybe 10 of whom you get names and you meet a lot of the others, at least briefly. And the Black Death kills every single one of them. And Kivrin is immune to the Black Death because of vaccinations and stuff she got in the future. And so she just spends 150 pages trying to take care of these people and trying to basically make them comfortable as they're dying. She's trying to save some of them, but she doesn't really think she can. And this was a really interesting thing because yeah you know you spend so much time setting it up that I was actually starting to begin to lose patience right I wasn't quite yeah, there yeah. but I was starting to be yeah. like okay Connie I get it like I I understand but what is happening with this book and then I really wished I could go back and get some more sort of world building <laughs> 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 because the I don't know 150 200 not even quite of the plague is in Oxford and it's killing everyone you've ever met uh, is actually among the more sort of harrowing reading experiences I've ever had and um, she does such a really good job portraying it very realistically i mean i guess right i I don't know right but it appears to be very realistic and she does such a she she's very um restrained she doesn't give you a lot of scenes of people weeping and gnashing teeth right she tends to just describe what's happening and then you get a few bits where kivran is like you know, railing at god but it's like a paragraph right? right uh it's just focused on this happens and then this happens and then this happens and it's uh Heartrending. i mean it's incredible work um and it it, uh so in terms of the experience of the gut punch of the novel i was expecting it to be emotional because i've read connie willis before and she's good at that right uh and i was expecting it to be sad right And, and and kind of upsetting i was not expecting it to be quite as brutal as it was and by the end of it you've had kivrin basically become a saint to all of these people right because she comes from the future which might as well be heaven, right? And she's yeah. here to help all of these people as they're dying, and in fact, the priest is convinced that she's a saint at the end. Um, and because she kind of is, right? That is kind of kind of how it worked out. And it's just a really beautiful story at the end. And the stuff in the future is also really, really good uh, for a lot of reasons, which I, I guess I don't want to lean on too much, but what really caught me was the actual moment when the plague came to Oxford and kills the entire cast. Um, I've never seen a writer pull that kind of stuff off as well. I'm not saying it's never been done, right? But... You pretty much always have to keep somebody alive, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And uh, she, she didn't. Everybody dies, and it's uh, and about halfway through, I realized that was probably what was happening, right? And uh, it's just—it's really quite a thing. I'm, I'm, I know I'm not being terribly articulate here, but it.
1: No, uh, you're, you're you're capturing exactly what it felt like, which is just stunning. You're just stunned. You're totally stunned by the fact. I feel like for me, you you have like the, the the actually when I first read it, I remember being stunned when every single person in fact, did that, like, I didn't predict it, I was like, okay, because she, she kind of plays with you, right, and Connie Wills is so good about playing with your expectations, she's like, okay, well, one of the daughters, Rosamund, um, she's, you know, one of the daughters that Kivrin's watching, she's recovering, she seems to be getting better, you know, they, they might try and escape to Scotland where the plague didn't hit, and then that's, to me, the most poignant scene that remains so, is that, and then, of course, you know, she she dies, too, basically, when Kivrin's out doing something else, Rosamund also, passes away um and so but I, I but I want to so with that kind of you know with the initial perspective I'm curious Chris I mean you read. you read it you know you've you wouldn't even go on record about how many times you read this because you don't know <laughs> um <laughs> but I'm curious like when you know you, you, you just and you actually read it you read it for this podcast which by the way is like classic Christie doing the homework I mean you, you know like you could have <laughs> talked about this in your sleep but you read it again which is so awesome but I'm curious like what what always what always gets you and did anything get you new even even this time?
2: Yeah, um so I think the reason I'm such a an avid rereader is I find that books hit you differently based on what you're going through at the time and you're gonna read things that you didn't read the time before. And I know that a lot of that is projection, right? You're projecting onto the author whatever you're feeling about what's happening to the characters. I am so glad that I reread this for the podcast. <laughs> Um, because a, I think that, and we'll get into, obviously, I think we're going to get into this more, but the experience of reading about a modern pandemic as you're experiencing a modern pandemic is, is different. You know, you, you feel for those things that felt ridiculous to me the first few times I read it, you know, the, the masks and the, every time they yell at Colin about not wearing his mask, I was like, yeah, why would you do that? Except now we've, We've all lived through it. And so you know exactly why you would do that. Colin, um, get your
1: mask on.
2: Right, exactly. I felt I felt panic for Colin and Dunworthy the entire time because they were being so flippant about plague rules. <laughs> but the other thing I think is that I'm trying to think of how to say this in a eloquent way, but I can't think of one, so we're just gonna say it. This has been a year that's been marked by grief for a lot of people. But myself in particular i i've experienced a lot of really hard things this year as so many people have this year i don't want to you know negate what's going on in the world but i think that the experience of my own grief this year has changed the way that i experienced kivrin going through what she goes through at the end of the book when i was younger i read the the sections where people are kind of dying around her and i thought kivrin came off as remarkably cold and especially once they once they pick her up. And, and as an adult, you recognize that as kind of shell shock, right? She's, right, yeah. She's so traumatized by what she's been through. But as a kid, when, they, when Dunworthy and Colin arrived to kind of save her, I thought she came off incredibly cold. And I think, A, the perspective of being an adult and understanding adult emotions, but also the perspective of someone who has, you know, experienced trauma and grief for a prolonged amount of time. I think think changes the way that you experience Kivrin's part of the book um and so i'm really glad that i reread it because i think that this was a a reread that wasn't just enjoyable because i loved the novel but was enjoyable because it felt weirdly cathartic (laughs) um to to see kind of trauma reflected in something that you're reading
1: i you know i totally agree um it's obviously the elephant in the room. It's not the elephant room. It's, it's the room itself where it's been a really rough year. And I, I don't know anyone who hasn't had a rough year. Um, I know that you actually, you really have had a rougher year than a lot of people, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I
2: think it, it's an interesting read as we go through a collective trauma as a society to, to read about even the, the modern England or the future England parts of this book where people are kind of grappling with what does
1: this look like? Well, and I think honestly, it was kind of I, I love Connie Willis because uh, for a lot of reasons, but I think at her very best, she just captures what I always in my romantic heart want a book to be. I want it to be exciting. I want it to have adventure. I want it to move fast enough that whether through the language or through the plot, I'm dragged, you know, I'm dragged through it, right? I don't want to stop. And she does all of that, you know. Um, she probably actually will never get enough credit for how how she writes at the level of like I would say like I think that different writers have different like units of you know of excellence in their art- artistic kind of you know uh, quiver. And I think her her unit might be more like the paragraph as opposed to the sentence. But her writing is so excellent, and yet all I have to say is like she's she also like this is kind of the the beauty of a lot of sci-fi stuff to be honest. But her in particular, she she really she really is um unrelenting in the kind of you know the questions that she's asking about the world and in a way that's almost I think you know again I think sometimes is dismissed but she is asking you know the very basic questions of what do you do when everything goes wrong what do you do when the people in charge are incompetent and they keep you from making the situation better what do you do when you pray every night and you still wake up depressed and with people to take care of who are dying and those are questions that can be very, you know, they can be very um, cheesy. Like there's a whole industry built around asking those questions the wrong way. But she's someone who I think, actually, weirdly, through I think Bill, you're right. I think partly through her restraint, she knows what not to say. She always gets me. Um, and this novel, what got me more was um, the big deaths are still killers, right? So in the the the, the future, Dunworthy's kind of you know, best friend for this book, at least, is Dr. Mary Ahrens, and she's, like, you know, she's basically heading up the epidemic response, right? They're responding to this outbreak of flu, and she's the one doing a lot of the work actually helping save people, trying to figure out where the thing came from, trying to get, you know, the, the analog and the antivirals and whatever else, you know, future medicine they have to come fix the problem, and... Dunworthy gets sick with the flu. He goes down, and she basically just skips past his sickness because it's, you know, he's out of it. And he wakes up, and um, it takes a few pages, but she, she's dead. Mary Ahrens dead. And she hits it so well, um, Connie Willis, because she has Dunworthy realize that, you know, Dr. Ahrens didn't die right before he heard she died she'd been dead for his whole illness right like 10 days she missed he missed her funeral and so i feel like it was this this time around the black plague stuff is still d- a devastating read in its own right but there were so many more little moments um one of which was actually there's a different academic who's working at an historical dig which is actually where the flu came from that's kind of we can get into that later but like this other academic Mon- montoya who's done with his colleague you know, she seems pretty callous, right? Like, she's just, she's telling people she has to go to the dig, she has to keep working on the dig. The dig is the exact village that Kivrin is in in the 14th century. And um, Dunworthy kind of is mad at her, basically, until she basically admits that she wants to keep working at the dig because since they lost track of Kivrin, she wants to find Kivrin's body, her bones, her remains, and specifically the quarter uh, the recorder that they've implanted in her um, in her wrist, and for me that was like it was such it was such a quiet moment, but I found it really moving because I do think I do think that that's how that's how it's worked this year, where people who have annoyed you or aggravated you or who've seen your enemy, they like let their guard down for a second, and yeah, they've lost someone, they've lost their job, something has gone wrong, and it's happened to everyone this year. Yeah. Any other gut punches you guys want to talk about before we maybe kind of move on to some other stuff?
0: Well, I guess I I do want to talk about one specific one briefly, and and show sort of what I mean about Willis's restraint, right? Because, uh, so one thing we get a lot from the book is um, maybe once every two or three chapters we get a. A few paragraphs or a few pages in first person from Kivrin. She's got a recorder implanted in her wrist, and it has a whopping two point five gigabytes of space on it, <laughs> as she goes out of her way to say at one point, which I thought yeah. was very funny. Um, but anyway, and so every every so often you get her talking, you know, you know basically too Dunworthy uh, about her thoughts in this recording. Uh, she calls the the recorder the Domesday Book, which is the name of the sort of big census book that uh, William the Conqueror did in the. Uh, like roughly 1,100, so not long after the, the conquest, uh, right. and because she thinks it's funny to, because it's like one of the most important texts for like medieval historians, and it's also funny because it sounds like doomsday book, right? And that's basically a joke she makes. So she's talking to the recorder, and you get one. She's sh- she's saying a few things, and she'll just start listing the names of the people who've died, and so the two little girls are both sick, and Agnes, the younger one, who is actually just sort of awful, but has been sort of clinging to Kiveren's skirts the entire time, right? Uh, has gotten sick but at first they're not sure it's the plague like maybe she just has like something else and then she's maybe getting better and then she takes a real sharp turn for the worse like in between a break in the first person narrative right like you get Agnes seemed better though she had a nosebleed a little while ago she asked for her bell which is her toy and then break and then you get one of the only times that Willis ever really lets one of them let loose in this scene right you get a little paragraph here of you bastard I will not let you take her she's only a child that kind of thing right the end of that chapter cuts to a new chapter, and it just says, "Agnes died the year after New Year's, still screaming for Kivrin to come." And then you get like yeah. a very brief bit about that, and then two pages on it, and then they move on to the next thing because they don't have time because more people are sick. And uh, that—that's one of the moments that really got me because I mean, I again, I wasn't surprised at that point, but it really—that was really brutal. And um, again, but it's the restraint though. You could—you could have you put so much more into that, right? Like a lot of writers would have shown you that in real time you know what I mean and would have had a lot more of Kivrin sort of gnashing her teeth than you actually get and it's much more effective because you see much more sort of natural reactions rather than something melodramatic and then you also see which is in some ways the worst thing about this is she still has work to do you know what I mean yeah this little girl has died one of the people that Kivrin liked best and felt sorry for and they have to bury her and then take care of the other sick people
2: Yeah. And I think that shows one of my favorite things about Connie Willis is her understanding of what people are like, (laughs) like what it what it is to be a, a person with sort of complicated feelings. And even her littlest side characters get these kind of complex lives, right? Yeah. And that sense of kind of overwhelming grief, but there's still stuff that has to be done is is so appropriate. And I think you're right, Bill, that even for me this time through, that was such a poignant moment because, you know, we've we've seen a year of, of grief and there's just so much work to be done outside of it, you know?
1: Well, and I think, um, I, I actually remember uh, reading Julia Atsuka's, I think it was Buddha in the Attic. It was one of her two books. And, uh, it you know, it opens with basically this kind of traumatic instance of it's about, you know, um, Japanese internment camps in America during world war two. And this Japanese American family has to basically get ready to, to be moved. And so the mother, like, okay, this is so much, I'm sorry. I'm bringing more darkness into this podcast. <laughs> but this, uh, this mom, she, she kills the family dog cause it can't go with them. And it's done in the most clinical way ever. And it, and it's not, I think there's like a, a there's a cheap out where you do things that resist, Kind of you know I don't you you know you almost like resist making the character more full because you don't want to be melodramatic and then you undersell it but I think when when like the action is so intense and violent and big because it's already so big and intense and violent that actually the best kind of way to deliver it is very plainly and I think it's funny that Connie Willis you know. As a sci-fi writer doing these big world adventures, these big world-building stuff, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of having a 500-page book, right, is that she kind of gets to do everything she wants to do, right? Um, She gets to do kind of the literary moments, you know, of restraint and, you know, kind of minimalism within this, like, maximalist project, and I, I, I don't know, I, I think it's fun as a reader, because you, you get, you know, through one book, you get to go through so many different layers of, like, understanding a person, but also kind of so many different ways of enjoying a book. Uh, yeah, I was, gonna, so I, I was gonna, I, it's obviously, again, we have to, we, we really do have to go through the uncanny way in which this book lays out exactly what's happened in COVID, Oh yeah, and, I, and I, I I have a little list that I'll rattle off in a second, but um, <laughs> I think I think Emily, my, my wife, made the funniest point. I was giving her this list last night because she's read this book; she loves it too. And I was telling her, you know, how uncanny it was to go to like to have every single like point of tension in the last year predicted by Connie Willis, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. And Emily was like, "Oh, so you're saying a lot of our problems we had were." Solvable. <laughs> it's was like, so true, though. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, you're right," because this woman who did research in Greeley, Colorado, in the late '80s and early '90s basically predicted most of the things we've had go wrong, including basically actually what she predicts best, Christy, You're right. What she predicts best is how different types of personalities will react to certain, you know, necessities of uh, of a, of, a, of an epidemic. Okay, so real quick, I just want to, so the first thing we have to say, actually, is that it's one of the smartest points in the book, too, actually. This, the setting is 2054, but they talk about that this is a world, 2054, which has a pandemic that happened 30 years earlier, and so the novel's kind of, you know, it's confusing in summary, but it's it's sort of brilliantly, you know, woven into the future stuff that there's an epidemic outbreak in Oxford, but everyone lives in a world in which there was a devastating pandemic 30 years earlier, which is about when we're living, by the way, it was so weird. And so the, so the kind of like the, the, the world is you know, uh, the, the nature of the, the universe she's working in is very like, you know, pandemic aware. Right. Okay. Anyway, so, so, so here's like a list of things that she talks about. She talks about the pandemic that happens in, like, basically 2023. She talks about how in that pandemic, um, American civil liberties caused the rest of the world to basically turn on us to the point that one woman was traveling in Egypt in, like, 2031, and the were shooting, Egyptians were shooting Americans on sight. Baudry, who's the first person to come down with the flu... It's from East Asia, and without ever addressing it, she has the nastiest characters who don't know anything about science before the case has ever been you know, traced back to its origin. Everyone starts calling it the Indian flu, which was unbelievable in light of the China virus stuff we had last year. There are protesters who are in Britain, of course, wanting to secede from essentially the EU. The EU hadn't even totally coalesced by the time she wrote this book, and she predicted Brexit before it had even happened. There's the big stuff, such as a lab leak theory or the entire, you know, stuff about masks and not wanting to wear a mask. There's a PPE, essentially, shortage. There's even little things. And this is where her imagination is so, I think, minute at times, you know, or so, you know, so microscopic in how it can, you know, zoom down done when he was going for a walk after the epi- epidemic happens, and she describes the way that someone steps off the sidewalk to go around him. And it, I just I couldn't help it. It was just like, oh, my gosh. this is, It's like she lived through COVID before COVID happened. Um, there's so much else that she, she does that I didn't have time to write down. One of them, the biggest one, was there's a big church service in 2054 and the epidemic has been declared quarantine's about to be kind of really recommended and enforced and there's a, a yeah a church service that Dunworthy asked to read at and the church is stuffed it's just overpacked. and not only has that been a thing you know in the Christian community that talks about churches being closed and stuff but actually like on March 12th or something, um, my friends and I went to a bar and we all talked about like it was the last time we were going to go out and you know, i had quit my job and it was this big thing and we went to a bar that's usually somewhat popular and it had, I had never seen it so full of people who were clearly preparing to like not go out again. I don't know. So it was, it was so many, it was like, I I guess for me it was just this, it it was like, it was a checklist of things that she did, but it was also like she had the big picture tensions and the personal tensions just completely figured out as if she was writing about my experience during COVID. I'm assuming that that was your guys' experience as well.
2: Yeah. I think one of the things that struck me is that there's a point later in the book where they've decided that the, I think it's the lab leak theory that you're talking about, that the virus has come through the time travel mechanism. And so there's protesters outside of Oxford protesting, shutting down the time travel so that no more virus gets out. And it, You almost get the sense that if 5G had been a thing in 1990, (laughs) that's what it would have been.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. No, that's a great, I didn't think about the 5G thing. Yeah, the new technology that everyone blames because they don't understand technology. That's exactly what it is.
0: Well, that's, that's fun because to be clear in the rules of time travel, uh, that, which, which Connie Willis, these are not like human laws. These are like physical laws, right? Like that can't happen, right? Stuff can't come to the future. That's a whole, and she plays with that in some of the later books, but at least as far as you know, in terms of doomsday book, right? That that just cannot in fact happen. And so much like how 5G can't possibly have anything to do with COVID, um, the time travel can't possibly have anything to do with their, their right. flu. Uh, but you still have people coming up with all these wild and bonkers theories, one, one thing I, I think that the future stuff in this book is is often mostly comedic until it all of a sudden very much isn't yeah. um, I think I think Connie Willis is often thought of as being like a, a comic writer and she is she's very funny and certainly some of the stuff she's written is primarily funny, right but I, I've noticed a lot of people like when you when you look her up online, they'll really focus on how funny she is in a way where you realize they're, they're not necessarily taking her seriously as a writer either, which is a shame because she's yeah, very very I agree. good. And also, comedy is very hard, right? If you're actually a very good comedic writer, that's that oh, requires it's the a lot of craft. hardest thing. Yeah. But I think so much of the future stuff is funny until all of a sudden it isn't. Um, like, f- for so much of the of the book, the future pandemic is just sort of an inconvenience to Mister Dunworthy, right? It's right. a series of obstacles for him finding out whether something went wrong, because we first know there's a problem in the future when Bodri, the the tech who was running the time travel drop, as it's called, right, uh, stumbles into the pub and says there's something wrong and then passes out basically right and then so mr dunworthy is trying to figure out if everything's okay because they thought everything was okay with Kivrin, but now they don't know (laughs) and he and mcbadry is sick and then in addition to that the guy who's supposed to sort of be in charge of oxford's sort of the whole history department of Oxford. I don't know if that's how Oxford actually works, by the way. I don't know if there's one history. It kind of
1: does, yeah. I think history faculty, yeah.
0: But there's the the actual head of the history department is off fishing in Scotland, I guess. We never figure out where he is, by the way, which is wonderful. He's just gone for the whole novel, being (laughs) an inconvenience. I know. There's
1: never resolution to that. It's We never
0: find out where he was. People are suggesting that maybe he's off having an affair, but nobody can figure it out. Uh, And so there's this sort of academic tension between Dunworthy and this guy, Gilchrist, who is the actual head of the medieval department so he's actually in charge of the drop even though Dunworthy is actually Kivrin's tutor and Gilchrist thinks everything's fine and refuses to let them work on it and then also starts doing things like shutting down the time travel machine because people are freaking out that the virus is coming through you know so he's he's a jerk right but it's all yeah. mostly comedic until all of a sudden they realize uh, for a while they think Kivrin is actually lost right because they think they've turned off the machine so they can't get her back and then Dunworthy passes out with the flu, up until that it's mostly been comedic and that's when Dunworthy wakes up and finds out that all these other people have died and things are, things are worse. And, and I think it's that deft ability to switch between comedy and, I mean, tragedy, frankly for lack of a better word, is another reason why Connie Willis is really good. Uh, in another book she wrote called Lincoln's Dreams, she makes basically what if you were having Robert E. Lee's dreams all the time and that was weird turn into like actually sort of a heartbreaking thing at the end. It's not nearly as good a book. It, you know, it's a little clumsy in places, but it's kind of a ridiculous premise. And it actually ends yeah. up being really, really sort of uh, touching at the end.
1: <laughs> well, and I think it's actually, it's, you know, to your point earlier, Christy, about you gave this book to a friend kind of not thinking through how specifically, you know, this you know kind of details our own life right now but what what i kind of found like there was relief in the kind of you know catharsis of grief right but there was also there was like the comedic relief i found Relieving now, you know, like all, like even like little things, like Dunworthy, like you said, Christy, is reminded to wear his, you know, mask time and again. And uh, Doctor Arns, I think someone says, "Why aren't you?" And he's he says, "It keeps steaming up my glasses." And I was like, "Yes, yes, I want to follow the I want to follow the rules, but I have to read these grocery signs. <laughs> I don't know how to do both." Um, and so there was kind of like there was like you know there was the, there was the the lightheartedness was also part of what made it such an enjoyable kind of like you know letting out of feelings um but also because there's a lot like she does petty villains she does petty villains better than anyone um it's a little like i mean this is a touchstone that everyone knows and so i I use it a little begrudgingly but it's a little like um what's her name umbridge in the harry potter series um you know like just this bureaucratic presence who makes everyone's life worse in a mostly like you know like really, yeah, petty way. She has them in both timelines. She has in the 14th century with the mother-in-law of the lady that Kieran is staying with, and she has at least one, if not several, in the uh, 21st century. I basically wanted to kill um, Gilchrist, then with rival, and then she kills him with the flu, and you feel bad. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing left to waste, um, which I thought was a yeah, brilliant. <laughs> but.
2: Here's the thing that I think is so brilliant about this. One of my favorite things about Connie Willis as an author is that she is clearly, throughout all of her work, fascinated by the scientific experience, right? A lot of her characters are scientists in one way or another. Kivrin, although she is a historian, is kind of a scientist. She's like, this like quest for information is at the heart of 99% of Connie Willis's work. And the thing that is often in the way of those people is bureaucracy. And so, so many of her villains are either, you know, the metaphor of bureaucracy. She's got a great novel called Bellwether that's about scientists trying to navigate the bureaucracy of the company they work with in order to get their experiment funded, or people like Gilchrist who are like in-person stand-ins for the concept of bureaucracy. And so, all of these, all of these scientific characters who are on these quests for information. Have to navigate either a metaphorical or a, a literal person standing in their way of them getting the information that they need. And I think that it's done so well in this book because you're right, you've got these kind of mirror images between Gilchrist and um, the mother in law in the 14th century, kind of over and over again blaming the wrong person, holding up communication, just standing in the way of this person who wants to find the information that they need to get. To get the scientific experience completed,
1: right? That's per- that's perfectly said, and I, I do think, that to what you said earlier, Bill, it it is how she strings you along, right? Because she has interesting little side plots, like Kivrin in the 14th century. You know, she notices that uh, Lady Eloise, the lady of the house, is probably having an affair with Gawain, who is like her husband's, you know, knight basically her husband is away to bath, we don't know why, so there's, like, these like, there's little tensions that she keeps, you know, that she keeps kind of, like, hovering over the plot, but, like, honestly, the plot for both timelines for most of this book is trying to talk to someone, and you can't get them to tell you what they, what you want them to know, right? Like, that's the, like, that's the plot of basically both books, or both timelines, and I, I feel like it's a testament to Connie Willis that that sounds boring, right? Like that. Like this is a book. Of, <laughs> this is a book about contact tracing and having a fever, basically, for like 300 pages or more. And yet somehow, like for me at least, especially the third time through, for some reason, I ripped through it. I found it all great. I love. Like, I liked every bit of it. And in lesser hands, there's no way you pull that off. It's just there's not enough going on. And yet for her, she has so much going on, and he's like in a little interpersonal relationships that kind of keep the tension going so that, you know, you're propelled forward. But I think, yeah, Christy, I love that. That people are seeking information and they're being obstructed is definitely a key theme in her work.
2: Well, and for me, at least what you were just saying about, um, kind of the constructs seeming boring. This is about contract tracing. It's about, you know, a historian, which shouldn't be interesting, but i for me the mark of a good genre writer is someone who uses the genre conventions as a framework like this is sort of a time travel light book about time travel and i think that using those as a conventions to explore humans and what humans are like in various extreme situations really is the heart of good genre in my mind at least as a genre reader as opposed to books that are kind of about the mechanism of time travel being, you know, a, a huge plot point, this is more about using those those constructs of, of a plague and an epidemic and being stuck in the 14th century to talk about what humans are like. This is this is
1: actually a great transition because I, I I'm curious about what you think, definitely, Bill, especially as I feel like you know. We always joke about you being the genre guy, even though you're not me being the lit guy, even though I'm. You know, we're both just both. And now we have Christy, <laughs> who actually writes genre as well. But so, no. So I was going to say, I, I for me, I think the reason that she's the most decorated sci-fi writer is what you were just saying, Chris. She gets the balance perfect, right? The world building is not incidental, right? The world building is important. She She goes to great lengths to be clear about the restrictions and limits of what this world is. But she also doesn't make it a novel about time travel rules, even though it like it kind of is, right? Like the rules keep coming up because they're so important. And blackout all clear, it's even more about like time travel rules in some ways. Um, but I don't know. I guess I was curious, Bill, like from a you know from the sci-fi perspective. Like I think she gets the uh, the balance perfectly. But I also feel like because she does, she sometimes almost minimizes like a sci-fi writer. Like like this is a very historical novel. But I think she is doing sci-fi at it. I don't know, at its peak. I, I guess I was just curious where you stood on like her balance of sci-fi versus you know just writing characters as characters.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I haven't read some of her later stuff where I think she deals with other ideas, right? So I, I've seen her deal with her time travel ideas a lot, right? Uh, but I, I haven't, and I've read some short stories. But like her her YA kind of stuff with Cynthia Felice is is mostly just silly, right? It's fun, but it's not It's not serious sci-fi, and she doesn't think it is, right? Um, so I, I don't know if I'm the right person to talk about Connie Willis writ large, but certainly in in these books, I think she... I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm a little torn because I really love this book, and I think it's good, and it's definitely sci-fi, but the time travel stuff becomes, I think, about a lot of other things really fast, um, and that's certainly also true And To Say Nothing of the Dog, and I guess we'll have to talk about this at some point. I don't know what Connie Willis's individual religious opinions are although I I think she is some flavor of Christian but like um, this book in particular as well as to say nothing of the dog a bit is actually very much about like questions of theodicy and such and questions about God (laughs) to some extent (laughs) the time travel and the net and all that I think I, I tend to parse that almost as more of a sort of a theological thing like and it's my understanding in Blackout All Clear the characters even talk about that a bit although I haven't read it like There's a whole, to say nothing of the dog, they're all trying, it's sort of this silly project where they're trying to go back in time and like find this ridiculous artifact from Coventry Cathedral. But by the end of it, they realize that it's, there's some sort of like much more elaborate thing going on where the time stream is trying to correct itself and this fixed something and they don't know what for a while. And it's all part of some much larger, much weirder thing where the time stream is trying to fix itself, right? And there's all these other sort of broader theological questions so that i i don't even know if i have an answer to your question because i was spending so much time on this book not thinking about the actual science as science does that make sense
1: <laughs> no that's great you know what and then let's let's get to that because truthfully i, I i'm curious what you guys think about the statement this book i would say is primarily a book about the absence of god during tragedy or mm. the feeling of God's absence during tragedy. That's what this book, I think, is mostly about. And I'm curious, and Chris, you can head it off first if you want to. I'm curious if you all agree with that or how you would add to that. Or you can punt it to middle, um, that's fine too.
2: <laughs> I, I don't know, actually. I, I, I think that's an interesting idea that I hadn't necessarily considered. I I think I read this book a little bit more. It's very much a book about, you know, where, where is God in all of this? But I I think that there's so much to be said in this novel in particular about kind of acting in his stead. You know, you hear that brought up by Father Roche all the time. You know, we we have to act in his stead if he's not here in person. And I think she does a good job of using the medieval mindset that that God was like a, a physical being that could come down and help whenever and exploring what that looks like when that doesn't happen but i also think that it's a little bit I, I agree with you very much about the the presence of the net as as sort of a substitute for god in this universe but i i do think that it's i don't know i'm saying this really badly cuz i had never considered that point it to me it's more it's more about god not looking the way that you think it's going to look when god comes down to help i and think so, that's
1: great Yeah,
2: you have, you know, Father Roche waiting for God to show up, but instead he gets Kivrin, who, you know, you're right, Bill, is basically a saint by the end. You know, she comes from somewhere else and she doesn't ever get sick. There's no worry that she can get sick. She can kind of endlessly take care of people all the way through to Dunworthy getting Colin, who doesn't ever get sick and comes from somewhere else and can kind of be that comic relief teenager
1: through the whole thing. There's all these fantastic parallels between the two of them. I hadn't thought about that, actually, that Colin doubles Kivrin. You're completely right. He totally doubles Kivrin.
2: He's sort of endlessly useful. He runs errands and he, you know, knows all these facts about the Middle Ages because he's got that teenager absorption of information. And so in my mind, it's more a book about our expectations of God and what it looks like when we get God's help, but not in the way that we were waiting for it to come.
1: Bill, do you want to try to add to that or...
0: (laughs) I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's. I think that's absolutely one of the things of the book is. You asked if I thought it was primarily about. So I don't know what the book's primarily about. The book's about a lot of things, <laughs> but I do think that it deals with, like one of the one of the things that it deals with a lot actually. And this is. I mean, I'm just going to get into it. The book spends a lot of time actually wondering what God felt when He sent Jesus down to die. Oh, yeah. right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there's a lot with Dunworthy, uh, Dunworthy's in church, and he's wrestling with the fact that he's but he thinks he's basically sent kivrin down to die in the 14th century because he doesn't think she was adequately prepared and now they don't know where she is you know what i mean and so dunworthy is again and again wondering if he's done that and sort of you know so he, he has a couple lines in there about exactly like i wonder if this is what god felt you know and uh kivrin also starts to treat dunworthy as sort of a god figure mm. because uh, one of the one of the things they did in the book again i talked about the quarter they embedded in her wrist right um The idea being that she could talk to it, and they decided that, well, she could kind of look like she was praying. I'm making the gesture now for all of you in this incredibly (laughs) visual medium. Um, Anyway. (laughs) But if she holds her hand up in front of her face and looks like she's praying, she can kind of whisper to herself. And the, the contempts, as they call them, the contemporaries, aren't likely to freak out about it. And at first, this is just sort of a clever way to hide her, you know, updating her journal. But then as time goes on and she's trapped, she starts using it as a sort of a a diary more than just a a journal of events. And she's often addressing them to Dunworthy, so she's sort of praying, right? And then actually, towards the end, she actually does, like I said, the bit when she's railing at God for letting Agnes get sick, she's doing that in her quarter, right? So this becomes first sort of a, well, we're going to pretend it's praying, and by the end, she basically is praying. And then at the end, she has, I mean, everyone has died. Everyone, everyone has died. And she's actually found out where the drop is because of reasons it doesn't matter Um, but she's sick she's not sick but father Roche who's this incredible priest who she's uh, he's the last one to die and he's taking care of everyone with her and she he's just this wonderful human being Uh, he's when he's dying of the plague he actually kicks her and breaks her ribs sort of accidentally Mm -hmm. because he's in pain and so she can't get anywhere and so she knows that she's going to probably starve to death but she doesn't know what's going to happen right but she's she's missed it she's going to die and so she actually... So actually, I think it's the last entry she makes in the drop, or in the in the quarter. She's talking to Mr. Dunworthy, but she ends up saying, It's strange, when I couldn't find the drop and the plague came, you seemed so far away I would not ever be able to find you again. But I know now that you were here all along, and that nothing, not the Black Death, nor 700 years, nor death, nor things to come, nor any other creature, could ever separate me from your caring and concern. It was with me every minute. And, you know that's a prayer right (laughs) yeah
1: no yeah she's 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 i mean she's uh she's basically sampling scripture right
0: yeah and so so much of this book becomes about not just where is god but and and it's exactly where is god and it's also god being pieces we don't expect but it's also sort of exploring this relationship um between you know god and jesus whatever that means right in several places and also what it means to sort of be so you're seeing both help coming surprisingly right you're so i'm someone else and then i have surprising help from god maybe in the form of this weird teenager or whatever but you're also seeing what it's like to be the surprising help Mm. right yeah and the weird relationships you have there and uh, i don't know i think there's a lot of really interesting spiritual depth in this book that i'm probably not going to get into here in the podcast because i don't know if i have it all wrapped up yet but um I don't know. It's uh, so. so This all got here because you asked me if I thought she was a good science fiction writer. Um, I'm really answered the question. (laughs) We Uh, we, we nailed it.
1: The answer is yes. She writes about God, like all science fiction writers should do. Um, uh, But you know,
0: I mean, a lot of my favorite science fiction writers often do, right? I mean, who are my other favorite science fiction writers? Like Ted Chang, right? Dean Wolf, Madeline Lingle, incredible, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I I think that if you want the most interesting hard sci-fi depth, I don't know if Connie Willis is where you're going to find it, at least in what I've read, but I think it's just cuz she's not that's not what she's doing at all. Do you know what I mean? So, like comparing her to, like, Kim Stanley Robinson, who you read because you want to really think about what it would be like to terraform Mars. Like, really, I mean, like, really think about it. Like, it's just a different project, you know what I mean? It is.
1: Well, but that's, I guess that's kind of why, and I, and I was, I, mean, I was asking about taste, partly, and I, and, I, and I tried to forefront it. Like, this is definitely, she hits the balance for me, pretty exactly. Like, I've read some hard science fiction. Some of it I like. Uh, you know, some of Larry Niven's stuff can be harder science fiction, and, and some of it I don't like. Um, but for me, because I, but I, I, I as much as her rules of time travel kind of allow for this conversation about God and spiritual planes and a higher realm of meaning and so forth and so on. Um, I really appreciate that she's very clear with what the rules are and how they operate like physically and immediately, right? Like there are urgent necessities based on how this technology works. And yet I, I don't have to suffer through like talking about quantum mechanics and you know, like there's not like this like pretense to figuring out time travel. Um, Like, Michael Creighton in Timeline, which I read, you know, in high school or whatever, he tries to do that, right? He tries to have this kind of, like, you know, discussion of how it could actually happen. And I think she handles it perfectly because she has all the rules and all the restrictions, and the characters have to, like, try and figure stuff out, you know, based on what they can and can't do in a very consistent way. And yet, I don't have to, like, pretend that time travel isn't magic, um, which is what it is every time you use it.
2: But the other... I agree with all of that. But I also think that like any new and kind of astounding technology, she leaves the edges of what time travel can and can't do really blurry. The way that we don't necessarily have a good understanding of, you know, quantum mechanics or the internet or, you know, any big question scientific theory, the the edges get to be a little bit blurry because that A gives her a lot of narrative wiggle room. (laughs) Um, especially as she gets into the later books and kind of the mechanics of the net. But it also kind of lets it feel like a real technology, you know? The the question of whether the virus can come through the net is a, is an easy no. But they're not exactly sure how... with With slippage and with, you know, locational slippage, they're not exactly sure what the mechanics of the net are at this point. Right. And so you do get this kind of very realistic technological gray lines around this sort of simple concept.
1: No, that's, that's a great point. Cause like the, the, the rules are consistent and yet we don't know the limits of the rules basically. Right. So like mm. you, you know, that time travel does this and not that, but we actually don't know about like, what about this exceptional case? So Kivrin for example, Um, she, they think that the paradoxes don't allow you to go back if you're sick, right? Because if you take the flu back to 1320 and you wipe out a population, that would cause a paradox, and there are scientific laws forbidding that paradox from happening. And they kind of find this exception, right? That she got a virus that came from that time, and you know, like so, there are ways in which you know the rules are consistent, but their application and engagement. I think you're right; it's blurry um, in ways that I think is cool. I do want to pivot back real quick to the theology stuff because, for me at least, this third time through, I, I really was struck by how much. For me this is a book about god and i and i that might turn some people off of it and it's you know it doesn't have to be that if you don't want it to be it bill's right it has a lot going on but as far as like what's the meaning of this book or what's sort of the 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 tension of you know its moral questions it is i think about what it feels like to not get a response from a higher power um and but but why i think it's important to talk about is because it kind of reveals all of her best tricks as a writer, right? Because she has these highfalutin ideas. You know, she's talking about big meaning stuff, you know, predetermined timelines, and so forth, so on. But how a lot of that acts itself out in the novel is it acts itself out at, like, various levels of plot, right? So you have the big plot of the actual time travel. How do we get to Kivrin? We can't get to her. You know, there are time travel rules preventing her from coming back and there are time travel rules preventing us from getting there, as well as, there's also bureaucracy preventing us. And then there's even like we talked about earlier that the the history the head of the history faculty at Oxford, Game, he's gone the entire novel. And it's a clear gesture to what it feels like to pray and pray and pray right when you need God most and to never get an answer. Like Bill said, there's no resolution. Bazin Game doesn't come back and fix things. He doesn't come back in time to stop Gilchrist from, you know, marooning Kivrin. Nothing that you think will happen will happen. I think you're totally right, Chris. I think the text itself, the text totally lands on we must act in his stead, um, and that God comes through, God, God's help comes through natural means and through ourselves in a way that, you know, you don't always expect. It's not, you know, just a miracle from on high or whatever. But I but I love that she doesn't she doesn't leave the idea alone. It's like she chews on it endlessly through various plot points, right? So no one can talk to anyone in this novel. Not only does Basing game, a clear stand in for God, absent, not only is Dunworthy, unable to get to Kivren, kind of a clear image of God for again in that situation but like dunworthy can't get the phones to work you know kivrin can't get gawin to talk to her for five minutes about where he found her Even um, it's just this co- even yeah.
2: eloise's husband they they are kind of continually yes. waiting for him to come back from bath and sort of save them
1: well and it, and it actually it gets worse so like people get sick and they don't recognize when someone's there, which goes to your point, Christy, that you don't recognize maybe the help you get. Bodri gets sick. He keeps demanding to see Dunworthy, but Dunworthy's in the room. Agnes gets sick, and she does the same thing. She keeps screaming for Kivrin. Kivrin's right there helping her, but she can't see her. And so I think, you know... I think Connie Willis's one of her greatest strengths is actually, like, too much is just enough. It's like the pandemic I mentioned earlier. Not only is this a book in which an epidemic happens in 2054 and um, the Black Plague happens in 1348... But it's set in a world in which a pandemic killed 30 million Americans in, like, 2031 or whatever, or 2021. You know, so it's like she, she goes so, so overboard that it kind of comes the norm, right? And I think it also makes a lot of these ideas, it makes them immediate, and it gives them kind of narrative weight, and it, it removes them from some of, I think, the philosophy 101 you know, uh, cheese ball stuff you could get in a different novel and she doesn't every like every book she does it in like passage does this, which I won't talk about now, but every book she does, the bigger themes of the novel, they're just they're hammered home at every level of the plot and it does give this sense of like actually different realms of meaning coexisting, which is the Christian idea of the world. And it's really, really smart, um, but also really, really fun. and I just yeah, I just wanted to kind of I, don't know, I guess hammer that home because I found it really impressive this time around.
0: Well, one thing I wanted to talk about, unless, Christy, unless you had something right this no, second. go for it. it. That was building on what Joel said. Okay. So one thing I want to talk about, uh, Connie Willis has said in a couple places, and I first encountered it in the introduction to her short story, Blued Moon, mm. which is in the Firewatch uh, series. Blued Moon is one of the funniest things. It's just it's it's just so a good. series of jokes, basically, for like 35 <laughs> pages. Um, the I'm going to go ahead and spoil it, because I think it's actually even funnier when you realize that this is what's happening. There's a company which is pumping pollutants into the air. I forget why. Um and it makes the moon look blue and that means a bunch of funny coincidences start happening. And that's the whole uh story and it's incredible. Uh because there's a whole sequence where a man is just trying to get up and like shave and go to work and everything breaks and so he just ends up quietly sitting on the edge of his couch looking at like the broken light bulbs and everything else that's around him and just afraid to move because he doesn't want to. <laughs> and it's a series of funny coincidences which all end up with, you know, the guy and the girl getting together and everything's great and it's, it's a very fun little story right but in the introduction she talks about how much she loved uh fred astaire mm-hmm. because fred astaire would always make everything look effortless but if you actually worked with him on one of his movies he would come to the like the part of the studio or whatever like three weeks early right to prep right. everything like way earlier than anybody needed to because he needed it to not only look effortless on stage he needed it to, or for the film but to look effortless to the you know the cast and the crew right (laughs) um and so he would do these ludicrously complicated dance things and make it look like it was always easy and she says in the intro to that that that's like her writing hero she wants to do these ludicrously complicated things with plot but actually make it all look easy right and so one thing she does i mean certainly so as Joel's talked about and, and chris you've talked about with echoing this theme you know with multiple different relationships she does that all the time but she also sets up a lot of funny things where random characters you've met throughout the novel will all come together at the end to do something important, right? Yes. Like, one of the recurring, one of the things she does at the end is when Dunworthy and Colin go back in time to rescue Kivrin, it's kind of an ad hoc, not allowed thing, right? Uh, There's nobody really watching because Mr. Bassingham is still gone and Gilchrist is dead, and so no one's going to stop them, but they have to get Dunworthy out of the hospital and they have to do all these other things for this sort of unauthorized time travel jaunt, right? And all these characters you've met throughout the future bit who have just been sort of minor recurring gags basically all come together to help this happen um so like you've met this guy william Gadson, whose mother is the sort of horrible person who shows up and <laughs> just keeps yelling at dunworthy yeah. right and so for most of the novel william Gadson is two things he's the reason why mrs Gadson is bothering dunworthy and he's a recurring gag about how he is making out with every like attractive young woman in oxford right <laughs> like again and again he is he's tangled up with some nurse or with some um you know other tech from another college or something right well by the end of the novel all of those women uh are actually all very important in helping this happen right because one of them a nurse who signs off on some stuff and another one is another one of the techs who helps them get it going and all these other things right or similarly there's a bunch of american bell ringers who have come mm. they're supposed to go and um play handbells at a thing in Oxford, and they're super annoying the whole novel, right? Because the they're, yeah. they're loud, first of all, because they're playing loud music. They're American, and so they're, they don't understand why the pandemic rules apply to them. Again, this was 1993, I think, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> um, they're super obsessed with trying to make sure they get to play a particularly jarring chord at a particular cathedral at a particular time, right? They're always annoying. They're always in the way, but they end up staying at Dunworthy's College, and so he's taking care of them. And at the end, one of them, you know, sneaks in and helps, uh, helps him get out because it's not worth getting into, right? But they end up being useful for that. And then she uses um, a throwaway joke from the Bell Ringers as one of, I think, the most emotionally effective moments in the novel Agreed. later on. So there's there's a joke where these bell ringers are super committed to the bell ringing, right? And every man must stick to his bell, is a joke they say a couple <laughs> times, right? With the joke that you can't switch someone out halfway through. It's got to be the same person ringing the same bell the whole time, and it's all very silly, right? And, you know, so one of, the, one of them passes out, and like, well, every man had to stick to his bell, so we had to stop. Well, later on, they've gone back to rescue Kivrin, and Kivrin is basically sitting with Shellshock outside the cathedral where Father Roche has just died. Throughout the future, or throughout the Black Death time, they talk about ringing the bells of the church, a different number of times whenever someone dies right I think it's nine times when a man dies six when a woman and three when a child or something like that. it doesn't matter the point is you ring the bell a certain number of times when someone dies right and Father Roche after every one of these deaths goes up and rings the bell even though it's hard and even though it's useless right and they've buried all the other people but they can't bury Father Roche because he's like six five and they're all hurt or children right so right. they can't they can't bury him but Kivran wants to ring the bell and but she's broken her rib, so Dunworthy goes up and does it, and he's sick, and so he try to ring the bell nine times, and it's hard and it's difficult and Colin at one point says he'll try to help and Mr. Dunworthy says every man must stick mm-hmm. to his bell, and it's incredible, it's masterful yeah. and uh so the way she this is a long bit to say she will have little jokes and little characters that come together at the end of the novel, either in part of the plot or as part of a theme to end up make the whole thing a much more you know. A just a really coherent, really well crafted whole. You feel like the whole book was done very on purpose, which sounds silly. Obviously, nobody writes a book, you know, the, the books don't, words don't magically appear on page. But there's nothing in this book that feels like she threw it in for the heck of it, right? You feel like every single line, every single character adds to the broader theme in a very deliberate way because she got there three weeks earlier and was dancing before the cast got there. You know what I, I mean? Yeah, I think <laughs> exactly. you
2: hit the nail on the head earlier in that she spends so much time setting up this chessboard and I. I think Connie Willis is obviously a, a huge fan of cinema. You kind of see that all over her work. And she's said it a few so, times yeah. that she's a huge movie buff. But there's this concept in screenwriting that you kind of get hammered into as a screenwriting student of setup and payoff and set up and payoff and everything that you set up should be paid off in some way. And that is all over this book. There's all of these like Joel was saying, the the sort of side characters that become important later on. There's things that are mentioned very offhandedly, like I love even with this reread being my umpteenth reread, I love at the beginning when just to make Dunworthy feel better, Dr. Arns is like, listen, I even gave her a plague inoculation. She can't even get the Black Death, even though she's not going to the Black Death. And it's kind of said as this sort of throwaway, like, don't worry, we've thought of every eventuality. And then that becomes incredibly important, especially, I think, as you realize she's in the Black Death and she doesn't know yet. You already know that she can't get sick. And so... This whole book feels like – I love that you said that, Bill, that everything feels on purpose because it does. It feels like this very careful game of setup and
1: payoff all the way through it. One of my favorite metaphors to describe what you're saying, Christy, is um, it's one of these metaphors that, like, doesn't actually help you write, but it, it does help you read, and it's the idea that, like, when you're an author, ideally what you're doing is you're, you're kind of a juggler. You're throwing a bunch of different pens into the air, right? And a lot of authors, you throw as many as you can, and the best authors, you know, you have to do what a juggler does. You have to catch every pen. And I, I actually don't know if there's a writer out there, except for, like, and she loves, like, Agatha Christie, some of those old school, kind of, you know, heavily heavily plotted, smart mystery novels. She loves those too, is what I've always read. And so those people do it pretty well as well. But I, I, I really don't know if there's a person out there who catches every single pen as well as she does. Um, for example, in Dunworthy and Colin, when they rescue um, Kivren, there's two, there's actually a very small thing and a very big, or two big things, actually, yeah. One is they find a horse. And it's like, it's clearly Gawain's horse, this knight who um, went somewhere and they've been waiting for, right? They're waiting for the husband at first a long time in the 14th century, and then they're waiting for Gawain to come back, and he never comes back. And it's his horse, right? So, and she, so, so this, this, this little thread, she not only ties it off, but she makes it essential to Dunworthy and Colin not only rescuing Kivrin, but the bigger thing they do in some ways, not bigger thing, but they, to give context to the book, they go to the wrong village first, right? They go back to the 14th century and Colin and Dunworthy they go to the wrong village and they see kind of how terrible the Black Plague was when there wasn't a Kivrin sent from on high, the future slash God, to help. Um, ropes around people's necks and just this kind of horrible, you know, yeah, it's like an apocalyptic scene. And the horse lets them see that so they can contextualize Kivrin's visit. And then they go to Kivrin and it, yeah, it's just nothing is wasted. Their, vi- their visit to the village isn't wasted because it gives the context of Kivrin's meaningful journey. And also the horse isn't wasted because you kind of know what happens to Godwin, which is that he tried to get back. He tried to be heroic and he also died. Uh, I will say we, we have more things to talk about maybe, but I, I gotta say it. I, I have always wanted another Kivrin book. I I've oh, all, i so I know much. like I know I mean blackout all clear which we won't get into so that was not read it in some ways blackout all clear is like her having another go at this kind of story but during World War II and you have a couple of characters you know they they could be Kivrin Ask in some ways but like I I want Kivrin Connie Willis Connie Willis if you're listening <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm as a personal favor to us who love you so much I would like some more Kivrin books <laughs> um, if possible
2: yeah I would be down for that.
0: I do have, I think, one other sort of big idea I guess I want to hit, because I know when Joel asked me, you know, what was it like to read this for the first time, I talked about how I was starting to lose patience almost before the plague came, um, because she does spend probably two-thirds or maybe even three-quarters of the book just kind of setting up all the pieces for the plague to come, right? And so you learn a lot about all of this this family in Oxford uh, and all their sort of trials and travails, and you're kind of expecting more of them to come back and be more important, right? Like, is the dad going to come back? What's going to happen with Rosamond and this horrible man she's betrothed to, you know? Is Gowan and Eloise, what's going to happen with them, right? And, of course, the reason she does all of that is because none of it's going to matter, right? Uh, and that's, of course, what it's like when a big, horrible pandemic com- or plague comes to your town, right? Is These were real people who had real lives and concerns and worries and subplots, right? You know... Lady of Maine, before the plague comes, the only thing she cares about is getting rid of this troublesome priest. Ha! Bam! Historical reference. Did you get that? That was Beckett. I'm killing it. I'm sure. Anyway, uh, the only thing she cares about is getting rid of Father Roche, who she perceives as being, you know, the worst, um, this, this horrible country bumpkin, right? It's the only thing she really cares about, that and berating her daughter-in-law, right? And she has no idea that in a week she's going to die screaming, you know what I mean? Uh, and that's, I think that by spending so much time building these characters up and getting you invested in them, that's what makes the ultimate hammer blow that much harder, right? And it's also why when she is killing them all off in this horrible way, she doesn't have to dwell on it more than just to say, you know, Lady Mae died and give you like three sentences about it because you already know everything about that, right? Um, and I think that's another reason the book works as literature and not just as a fun project, right, is because it is saying something about what it's, you know, that these are real people, right? Which is again and again a, a thing she comes back to in all of her time travel stuff that I've read, right, is that the history history is, is about real, actual people that existed and had lives, right? That's the whole point of Firewatch. That's a non-trivial part of To Say Nothing of the Dog, and that's another reason why, again, this book is so good, and even if I started to lose patience, like, it, it paid off. It was absolutely worth it at the end. Uh, even though I don't know the answers to any of those subplots, right? Because they're all dead. That's the point.
1: Yeah. Well, I was going to say, and I, I think what's especially intelligent about you know that conversation for this book is people have historically, this is less true now, we've had years of revision, but, like, people have historically dismissed the Dark Ages as basically, like, a, almost like a subhuman period of history, right? And you have all of these crazy D- and people still think some of this stuff. where, like you have Gilchrist say, who's you know a, a medieval historian. You know they didn't care about death. They didn't feel anything, right? And that's not only historically totally inaccurate. I mean, it's a few it's a few centuries later. But I read um, I uh, read a biography of John Donne, and um, the author of the biography and John Donne both lose children, you know, left and right to some extent, and he talks about the toll it takes on John Donne's marriage and John Donne as a person. You know, this it's not like people magically flipped a switch in 1459 or something or 1510 and started caring about children, you know what I mean? Like the Romans built caskets for their babies who died at birth, um, but anyway, so I th- I think, but I think what's, so what I'm saying is like she always wants to make history real. But I do think I love the project she has in mind, which is to say like, all of this tragedy didn't make them less human, you know? It made their humanity kind of more precious, which again, could be a really cheap idea, but it's not because it felt real, right? Like it, it mattered that Rosamond and Agnes lived, you know what I mean? like and, and only their deaths only hit. If their lives were sort of default good, you know what I mean? Like if they were fully human and fully deserved, if you can deserve, to have a life, that's why it's important they died. And I I do kind of love that she enters that basically Dark Ages debate and uh, kind of dismantles the Dark Ages side of things. Which is to say, like, it wasn't the Dark Ages. It was a period of, you know, tremendous richness. It just looked different and it had different problems.
0: Uh, one thing I often do when we do the podcast is we do sort of Bill's scattered thoughts of things he enjoyed, and I'm going to do that, but I thought that someone's read the book, you know, 45 times, and maybe we should see what are Christy's favorite little things that <laughs> happen in the book, because she's going to remember more of them than I am, so okay. what are your favorite sort of other things, like little, or, or, or anything or at all, thing, any other ideas whatever, you have, yeah. but yeah, but definitely, this is the part of the podcast where I say, I really loved on page 15 when they made this joke, right, so do you have anything like that? Yes, <laughs>
2: okay, I have a few of those. Um, one is, I guess, more of a bigger, like, thematic-y thing. So, I've spent the better part of the last year working on a horror screenplay and talking a lot about, there's, like, different things that can be scary, right? Sometimes it's scary when something kind of comes out of nowhere, but I think is more effective in horror in particular, and weirdly makes this almost a little bit of a horror novel, is the idea that the audience knows something that the characters don't. So... Even though you know pretty early on that something has gone wrong and Kivrin is in the Black Plague, the amount of time that it takes before Kivrin realizes that, I think that's a little bit of a horror novel, you know, and then when it hits, it's even worse because you knew all of that was going to happen. You've kind of lived through it one time in modern England, and now you're having to live through it all again as Kivrin realizes what's about to happen in this village. And I think that that is incredibly effective all the way through this novel, that she kind of works in these, and she does it in horror, in uh, short stories uh, here and there. She kind of plays with this element of horror of of you, this in, impending doom that you know something bad is about to happen and the ca- characters don't have any idea. They get kind of caught up in these like littler things, right? So that's one of my favorite things about the book. And I think especially having kind of dug in on the production side of making horror is really hard <laughs> and so it kind of gave me this bigger appreciation for what she pulls off um so i love that but i think the other thing that i came back to over and over in this rereading is this concept of parallels between the two storylines because there's so many of them obviously because they're both kind of plague epidemic storylines but even things like you get these really cool parallel moments that it caught me, especially this time through, where kind of midway through right around the Christmas celebrations in 1348, Kivrin has this sort of stunning realization that everyone around her has been dead for hundreds of years and that whatever happens here, you know, what, it, whether she gets back to the present or not, in her world, in, in modern England, all of these people are dead. And then at the end of the novel, you get this really fantastic other side of the coin, wherein Dunworthy, who kind of hasn't had any time to grieve Dr. Ahrens, is in 1348. And he realizes that Dr. Ahrens hasn't died yet, where he is. And so you get these characters kind of experiencing this time displacement and understanding of, you know, what humanity, what being alive as a human is like, but also how time impacts that. And... It's, it's such an incredibly clever device to make both things a little more understandable, especially with something like time travel that we don't have access to to understand in a first-person way. But bringing it back to these concepts of, you know, in in 300 years, all of these people that I'm experiencing right now will be dead. In, but it feels disjointed because that's not what she's actually experiencing yet. You know, I think that Connie Willis's use of parallels kind of throughout her work again that kind of setup and payoff is so effectively done here and i also think that you see it through kind of the use of fairy tales you know i think especially writing a book about the middle ages to make fairy tales such an incredible part of the story in so many ways even to like when they do pull off this kind of heist back to the middle ages to rescue her that that colin is dressed like in some theater production <laughs> Version of Middle Ages where, you know, kind of pulling that fairy tale concept of what we imagine the Middle Ages to be like throughout, you know, Kivrin even experiences that with kind of projecting Little Red Riding Hood onto these little girls or the story that she tells throughout of the maid in the forest, you know, kind of letting that our as the audience image of what the Middle Ages is like, which we understand mostly through fairy tales, play out right in front of us in the same way the characters are experiencing them.
1: The, the, I do want to jump in because I, I I love that because there is this like gritty reboot idea to her going back in time and seeing the inspiration for all these beautiful fairy tale ideas kind of in their more down to earth, you know mode. but I, I it's I loved it because Connie Willis, she both like, she gives you the reality so hard but she hits she hits the kind of reference so lightly that it's really just enjoyable to kind of notice it so like Lady Eloise and Gawain Gawain of course sounds like Gawain the Green Knight um, you know one of Arthur's knights but Lady Eloise and Gawain basically are playing out uh, Guinevere and Lancelot right and she at one point you know as Gawain is kind of boasting of things he didn't do Kivrin thinks to herself I wonder if he's you know making this up or if he's reciting some Lancelot story from the Arthurian cycle and it, it was again you know, it was like she literally she said Lancelot's name once you know what I mean like she just said it one time and kind of let you infer the rest which is a lot more fun for the reader I think but she did it again and again like there's a really clear reference to Dante at one point and you know, I found myself in a dark forest um and then uh th- also the, re- the, the other smart thing she does which is a, a, a you know is a little of me putting it into it but I, I read this book on fairy tales um last year in the beginning of the pandemic and Marina Warner kind of you know literally wrote this book and the book on fairy tales talks about the slippage linguistically between stepmother and mother-in-law and she talks about how sociologically, a lot of fairy tales, she thinks, and there's, you know, evidence to this, when they talk about evil stepmothers, it's been a way to, for, like, women to basically talk about the difficulty of coming into your husband's home and struggling with the woman who was already in charge. So it does, you know, it does also mean stepmoms, but, like, there's this weird slippage of mother-in-law and stepmom where the evil stepmom is not just someone hounding a child, she's also someone hounding a new wife. And of course that's um the the audiobook narrator I read said it this way, so I'm gonna say it this way. That's Lady Eloise's mother in law, um, Emily, right? She is this like terrible kind of, you know, presence. She's basically the evil stepmom. And Connie Willis never slaps you with that, but she has it all in there for you to discover, which is just the kind of this, you know, beautiful sandbox of like little treasures. Which I just I what you're saying with the parallels, Christy, but it's, she does it on so many layers that it, it's both fun and meaningful and tragic and, and everything else. She's awesome. Um, I, I she's, She is. Well, <laughs> you know, she, she really is. And even what you were saying earlier with the time displacement, <laughs> um, I mean, you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter if you don't believe it. She is kind of giving you this beautiful image of eternity, right? Kind of the eternal source of time in which all things, like, have happened and are happening and will happen. You know, like... She does put you in touch with that, and it's essentially a spiritual moment of hope, right? That like these people died, everyone dies, and then from Dunwoody's perspective, Dr. Ahrens hasn't died yet, and that is kind of the hope, right? Um, If you're a Christian. So, okay, yeah. Anything else you want to throw out there, Chris? That you just things that you love or little things, big things, whatever.
2: Yeah, can I say one more of my favorite parallel moments? (laughs) Please keep going. Of course. Um, so. Actually, I have this one literally on a post-it note attached to my book because I was like, bring this up. It's brilliant. Um, (laughs) So they kind of talk all the time in the beginning of the book about the cutthroat, right? Dunworthy's consistently worried about this cutthroat that's going to come out of the woods and, and murder Kivrin right away, right? And so she thinks when she's kind of feverish and she's just gotten there that Father Roche is the cutthroat, right? She, she sees him as one thing, and then she thinks that Gawain has been the one to rescue her, and she imagined the cutthroat because of all of Dunworthy's worry. So she does this brilliant thing where Dunworthy is telling the story of his first time travel um, to Colin, and he mentions getting sort of lost and running into a very scary-looking punk guy in the underground um, and being very intimidated and thinking, this is it, he's going to pull a knife, and I'm, I'm going to die in this time travel. And then the punker turns out to be actually very nice and gives him the directions that he needs and gets him back to the drop in time to go home. And then literally in the next chapter is the scene where Kivrin goes with the little girls to the church to meet Father Roche in person for the first time. And she sees him and sees the cutthroat from her nightmares. And then he turns out to be one of the kindest, most amazing people in the book. And those things happen literally back to back. But the first one feels incidental, but is subtly setting up this idea that you can see someone and think that they look incredibly scary, but they're actually the exact person you need to get you through this scary situation. And I think that it just points to that that chessboard. You know, she she puts that scene there on purpose and lets it be super casual, so that when the next scene
1: happens, you're kind of ready for it. She does. She just she just lets the the, the juxtaposition do all the all the work for you every time.
0: So I just had a couple of uh, little lines I wanted to pick out because I, I think. Again, it's important to remember how funny Connie Willis is. Uh, I, I do think that, again, I think some people talk about that too much and forget that she's also doing really interesting literary work, but uh, I, I do think we would be wrong if we didn't think about how funny she is. So first of all, I'd forgotten about this, and I don't have a passage, but I think uh, you guys talked about when Dunworthy and Colin go back in the past and they're wearing, you know, theater getup. There's this recurring gag where they bring something for Dunworthy to wear, and he asks them, what on earth was this, a production of Dracula? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that's a really good joke. But so, one I really wanted to pick out. So, when Kivrin goes back, she's delirious because she's got the future flu, right? And um, so she's meeting Father Roche and some other folks, and they're giving her last rites. They think she's going to die, etc. But, and she's delirious and hallucinating. And she, they put her in the, I think, in the church with uh, a big fire, right, to keep her warm. And she starts to think they're trying to burn her at the stake, right? And so you have moments of her screaming, you know, Mr. Dunworthy, I've fallen among cutthroats and such. (laughs) But the important thing is she's lying down and she's delirious, but she knows she's lying down. There's a lot of fire. And so she says, I'll have to tell Mr. Dunworthy, she thought. They burned people at the stake lying down.
2: Yes, yes. (laughs) That, like, she can't turn off her historian brain.
0: (laughs) It's one of my favorite little moments like that. Yeah, exactly, because it shows that even though she's delirious, she's still trying to be a historian, and also the way the brain works. Because when you're delirious, it's how your brain works all the totally. time, right? Like, you just make these totally absurd connections that make sense only at the moment. And I just, I, I wrote that down, because I have to tell him that they burned them at the stake lying down. is just incredible. Yeah. The fairy tale thing I just wanted to talk about again for a second. There's another uh, parallel there, of course, because... Uh, Kivern talks about how everything looks like a fairy tale to her, and she says that Rosmond looks like Snow White. and then of course, right. she gives Rosmond an apple and then Rosmond dies immediately after eating the apple. Um, and I think she even comments on it herself. but there's uh, there's just a lot of little stuff like that. I don't I don't know as I have any more bits. I was looking at my list and I think we've actually gotten to most of them already. but uh, it's a good book. That's what I'm trying to say. A really- I'm coming out strong, pro <laughs> Connie Willis. Everyone else is going to yeah. be like, surprised. But well, also, it does,
2: but does it's a good book to maybe read in like
1: a year? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I'm probably going to recommend it to people, to be honest. I feel like, I mean, not not every, not like everyone, you know what I mean? But like, I I, I feel like uh, I feel like it addresses it so on the nose, you know, because it wasn't even like um, a different kind of plague; it was a flu-like plague. <laughs> You know, yeah. it's not a coronavirus, yeah. it's a mixovirus mi- mi- or whatever it is, myxovirus, whatever. But, you know, but it was so on the nose that I, I and again, so much of it in the 2054 storyline is comedic. And it, it was like, this has been a dark year, and I, I'm not, you know, it shouldn't be the only reaction is to kind of laugh it off. But I, I actually do feel like that's one of the reactions we have to cultivate, and it, it was helpful to laugh about, you know, people... Stepping off a sidewalk to avoid Dunworthy, or his glasses steaming up—it was just—it was just incredible to see that in fiction. Um, but, but I—you're not wrong, Christy. I probably—I'll probably be a very select list of people I recommend it to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think I—I I know we're wrapping it up, but I—you I, know—I never actually have as good a sense of like the literary landscape as I think I do. But like, so for my weird, myopic—you know—view of the world of genre and literary stuff i i actually do feel like connie willis is overlooked to be honest i feel like she hasn't gotten you know i feel like when when, when, when i'm among other readers like in syracuse for instance you know we 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 had her books on the shelf in the library worked out but she wasn't this like go-to sci-fi recommendation for our readers advisory crew Um, whereas in colorado she is because she's a colorado writer so we're like we're very proud of her and we you know push her on everyone but um, when I was out east, I definitely felt like she was more of a niche writer, which seems insane because she sells books and she's won a ton of awards. And I don't know what I don't have like any like great you know social commentary on that. I just find it a bit of a bummer to be honest because she's not only a great writer to you know discover, but she really is. She's one of my favorite writers to
0: kind of continually rediscover. I think—so I, I have noticed some other folks talking about her more recently, so I'm hopeful that maybe she's going to get more of a resurgence. Uh, I mean, she's still writing. She's got, I think, one book at the editors right now, she said, and is working on actually another time travel book, uh, according to her blog. So that's exciting. But I, I'm hopeful that she'll get kind of a resurgence. But I think she's she's kind of from—like, she she really—all of her big books come out in like the late 80s and like the True. 90s, right? And I think a lot of the sci-fi from that era has is kind of being f- ignored— by like the modern sci-fi writers i'm not sure why exactly i have some pet theories that i'm not going to go into right now but like same you're right i don't hear like connie willis come up with like the sort of the end yeah. class do you know what i mean like by class i mean like yeah. that that like year class right like people who are that age i don't see her coming up with that group and i think that's a real shame because i think she does a lot of really excellent stuff that a lot of those folks would really like
1: yeah you know, one way we Connie Willis, again, if you're listening, one way we could solve this is if you would let Christy and I do an adaptation um of your work for TV. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an, like a like I think what what is it, <laughs> An anthology series? Is that what
2: <laughs> So the for people who maybe have not heard us talk about this ad nauseum, literally I announced at like fourteen that I was going to make movies for a living. <laughs> And I think that was the year that Joel and I started plotting our doomsday book to say nothing of the dog, all clear anthology series. So yes, that's kind of been a pet dream project for, you know, a long time, longer than we're going to age <laughs> Just let,
1: yeah, let us, <laughs> let us know, Connie, not, no pressure, but we would do right by you. Okay. We would do right by you. Um, okay. Guys, anything else you want to hit on before we wrap it up?
2: I don't think so. This has been a blast, guys. Thanks for letting me. Do
1: it has been really fun. Thank you, thank you for doing it, Christy. It's been really Absolutely. great having you.
0: Well, I think, uh, I think we are probably winding down here. Uh, I think we did it again where we don't know what we're reading next. Um, this year has been very ad hoc in that way. I, I don't do know why we did no that. Idea. <laughs> uh, so we'll keep an eye on the Twitter and I'll eventually announce it. But yeah, as of right now, we don't know what we're reading next. We have a couple of, of hopeful, secret, small projects between now and then, but the rule is we don't announce them until they come out. So we're not going to do that. But our next big book will be at some point in September, probably. And yeah, I think Joel and I have no idea what it is. So we'll let you know. Not even, like, a, a short list. Usually we have, like, a short
1: list. I mean, I threw some names at you at one point, but I I don't think we even have no, a short No, we list, just have we? Our, our
0: big, long list of, like, 30 books, which I realized if, yeah. we, if we do all of those and none of the others, we won't be done still until, like, I don't know, twenty thirty five. So I don't know. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, we'll let people know what we're reading next. But, uh, yeah, definitely Connie Willis's Doomsday Book. It won every award, and it deserved it. It's a very good book. Uh, yeah, Christy, again, thanks so much for being here. This was... Uh, This was a very good time.
2: Of course, yeah. Thank you so much for for letting me come play.
0: Absolutely. So we will will let you guys know what we're reading next, and in the meantime, I think we'll probably be signing off here. So uh, Joel and Christy, thanks so much, and
1: bye. Bye, guys. Thanks.
0: Thanks to the magic of podcast technology, I can actually tell you folks the next book we're going to be talking about on the podcast, even though we hadn't decided yet at the time that we recorded the bulk of the podcast. So our next book is called Working, People Talk About What They Do All Day and How They Feel About What They Do, which is a 1974 book written by Studs Terkel. It's a sort of oral history or collection of interviews about, well, exactly what it says it's about. We're excited about this one. It'll be our first nonfiction book of the year. As always, we'd like to thank Lily and Keenan Jarvis for the use of their song, Water Song, for the theme song for our podcast. We want to again thank Christy Kleppinger for coming on as a guest for this podcast. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you're well.